two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thanks once again, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. One of the knocks against Hollywood movies over the years, and there have been many, is that they only seem to tell stories about big cities, particularly New York and Los Angeles. Now... We have seen, thanks to places like the Sundance Film Festival, films that are set throughout the rest of the country, although there have been, uh, there's been quite a bit of a backlash against those films as well. But today, we're going to be looking at two such regional films set outside of uh, New York City or Los Angeles or any other big city in the U.S. As a matter of fact, they're both set in the South. Uh, there's Dazed and Confused, written and directed by Richard Linklater, and Ruby in Paradise, written and directed by Victor Nunez. In addition to both of them being set in the South, Dazed and Confused is set in Texas, while Ruby in Paradise is set in Panama City, Florida. Both films came out in 1993, the fall of 1993 to be specific. Both movies are more character-driven than story-driven, and we'll get into that. And just on a personal note, for all the crap that movie critics get, um, what they have always been valuable for over the years is spotlighting smaller movies like Days and Confused and Ruby in Paradise to encourage people to see it. And I saw both of these movies because of rave reviews from certain critics encouraging me to go to see it. For Days and Confused, it was a rave by Anthony Lane when he was just starting out at The New Yorker. Where With Ruby and Paradise, it was a rave from Roger Ebert. Yeah, he uh, loved that uh, film. Yes. So on both Siskel and Ebert and his uh, print review for the Chicago Sun-Times. So Claude now is going to tell us about Dazed and Confused. Yes, indeed. It is 1976, and it's the last day of school in the town of Huntsville, Texas. All of the students are already identifying themselves as being the members of the next class. That is, juniors are now calling themselves seniors, and students who are on the last day of eighth grade are called freshmen. And as is apparently typical of this town, the new seniors are making plans for hazing the freshmen as part of their summer activities, starting as soon as the dismissal bell rings. Now, for the girls, this appears to be a routine humiliation hazing thing, but it's looking like an all-summer-long kind of event, whereas for the boys, it's much shorter, but it's also much more brutal, involving some pretty violent paddling. What more, it, it appears that everyone in town just, they know what's up, and they appear to accept it as fact, with few exceptions. We do have a couple of characters whose stories we follow as we move through a bunch of set pieces, and we start with Randall Floyd, whom everyone calls Pink, of course. Pink is played by Jason London, and he's under pressure to sign a pledge not to take drugs during the summer or engage in any activities that would quote-unquote 
jeopardize the goal of a championship football season. Floyd is genuinely resistant to the idea of signing any kind of pledge, even if football players can pretty much do whatever they want anyway. Next would be new freshman Mitch Kramer, who is played by uh, Wiley Wiggins. Mitch manages to escape the initial attempt to haze him, but later on he basically takes one for the team, giving himself up as a sacrificial lamb so that some of his friends can escape for the time being. For whatever reason, Fred O'Banion, a second-year senior played by Ben Affleck in his first adult feature role, seems to be especially intent on punishing Rich, uh, Mitch. After his beating, Pink lets him off the hook and takes him home. He also offers to take Mitch out with him and his friends to a party later that night. Unfortunately for... Oh, it seems everybody in town, the party gets canceled when the beer kegs arrive a couple of hours early while the parents are still home. Finally, we have Mike Newhouse, Tony Olson, and Cynthia Dunn. They are played respectively by Adam Goldberg, Anthony Rapp, and Marissa Ribisi. They're the overthinking intellectuals of the school who hang out together largely because they don't belong anywhere else. But they've decided to participate at the party as well until they, like everyone else, discover it's been canceled. So with nowhere else to go, some of the students just cruise the streets. Others hang out at the local burger drive-in and some hang out at the Emporium, a place that appears to be little more than a pool hall for teenagers. While cruising around with Pink, Mitch is introduced to Julie Sims, played by Catherine Avril Morris, and it's pretty clear that they're attracted to one another. Also while cruising, Mitch is introduced to smoking marijuana and destroying mailboxes from a moving car. When they stop to pick up a six-pack of beer, they're confronted by one of the people whose mailbox was destroyed. He's pointing a gun at the boys, and they barely manage to get away. They return to the Emporium, where plans are afoot to move the keg party to the nearby Moonlight Tower. The party planner is David Wooderson, uh, someone who graduated a couple of years earlier, and if not for the fact that he hangs around high schoolers, would probably be considered mostly a harmless free spirit, and that would be Matthew McConaughey playing that part. Now, Mitch meets up with some of his freshman buddies, and they hatch a plan to get back at O'Banion. With the help of some girls, O'Banion is lured outside and gets paint dumped on his head. He leaves the Emporium raging incoherently. We move to the Moon Tower, and Cynthia, Tony, and Mike are just arriving. Mike notes out loud that it's pretty clear that some people are smoking pot, and he is immediately challenged for it by a tough guy named Clint Bruno, played by Nikki Cat. Tony bumps into freshman girl Sabrina Davis, played by uh, Christian Hinojosa, whom he met at the start of the film during a hazing session, and they spend the rest of the party with each other. Cynthia, despite herself, is rather taken by Wooderson and gives him her phone number. Mike, feeling humiliated by his earlier encounter with Bruno, concocts a plan to basically ambush him and then rope-a-dope it until other people step in to break up the fight, thinking, how long could that last? Well, as it turns out, the answer is pretty long, as the rather inebriated crowd mostly watches Mike get pummeled until Pink and Wooderson step in and pull Bruno off. Night begins to turn to dawn as we see Mitch and Julie now somewhere away from the party, making out on a hill outside town. Tony takes Sabrina home and they share a goodnight kiss. Several friends decide to finish their evening by going to the 50-yard line of the school's football field to smoke marijuana. When the police arrive, they ditch the drugs, but they're held by the cops anyway until the football coach arrives. The coach gives Pink a lecture about the losers he's hanging out with and once again insists that he sign the pledge. Pink replies that he may play football, but there is no way he's signing a pledge. He then leaves with his friends to go buy tickets to an Aerosmith concert. Closing the night is Mitch sneaking in by the dawn's early light where he finds his mother. Ah, well, she waited up for him. To be fair, he had been warned by his sister that this would happen, but what comes next is a little bit of a surprise. Mom tells him that this is his single get-out-of-jail-free card and it better not happen again. Mitch lies down on his bed, puts on a pair of headphones, and listens to Foghat's Slow Ride, which we also listen to as we watch Pink and his friends 
riding off into the distance to buy the concert tickets. And again, in the interest of con- uh, condensing the story, I've left out some other actors in some supporting roles, including Mila Jovovich, Parker Posey, and Joey Lauren Adams as some of the senior girls. And if I'm not mistaken, this was Adam's feature film debut. And if I am, Sean's going to tell me right now. Okay, so this was one of those before they were stars movies. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were some people who um, didn't become stars necessarily, but they gained steady work after this, like um, Adam Goldberg and Nikki Cat and Parker Posey. And in answer to your uh, question, by the way, Technically speaking, this was Joy Lauren Adams' feature debut, although she had appeared on TV quite often. Right, right. Um, actually playing the same character, apparently, on three different shows, including Married with Children. But... Um, in addition to in addition to her, uh, there were stars who auditioned for this who did not make it, including Claire Danes, Vince Vaughn, another star who we're going to mention a little bit later, and someone who can be seen very briefly in two scenes, Oscar winner Renee Zellweger. Mm-hmm. She's one of the girls in the parking lot during the opening credits sequence. And she's also seen walking by Witterson in front of the Emporium. And then, of course, uh, there were big stars who emerged from this movie, like Ben Affleck and Mila Jovovich. But the one I want to talk about right now is Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, can I just come back to, to Affleck for a second? He was so young in this film. Like, my wife was watching this with me. It wasn't until you get to the end credits where you got the star's pictures along with the credits that she was like, I didn't know that was Ben Affleck. She had no idea. That's how young he was in this film. Well, he and, as it happened, a couple of the other actors in this, Anthony Rapp and Cole Hauser, had appeared in another high school, the year, high school movie the year before, School Ties. But anyway, back to McConaughey. Part of McConaughey's story here is, you know, the usual Hollywood fable about becoming a overnight star. Uh, Don Phillips is the casting director of this movie, also cast another before they were stars movie ten, about 10 years earlier, Fast Times at Richmond High. And he was in a bar one night and noticed McConaughey tending bar and got talking to him and liked him enough to recommend that he meet Linklater. And he and Linklater hit it off. And even though Linklater thought McConaughey at first was too good looking to play Wooderson at first, he thought McConaughey became the character and cast him in the part. However, the guy who plays Pickford, who was supposed to have the party at his house before the beer guy shows up too early and the parents nix the party there, uh, that actor is played by Sean Andrews. And apparently, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but he and the other actors, particularly Jason London, were not getting along during the shoot. Now, if you'll notice, whenever Pink, Floyd, and uh, Pickford 
are in scenes together, they hardly ever talk to each other. That's yeah. because the two actors were not getting along at all. And originally, Pickford was supposed to be in that scene at the football field near the end. And he's the one who's supposed to give a speech to Pink. Um, about things after Pink has what is one of his most memorable lines in the movie when he says, all I'm saying is that I ever, if I ever start referring to these as the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself. But Linklater instead changed it around so instead of Pickford being in that scene, Wooderson would be in that scene. And he gives what is generally considered one of the most memorable speeches of the movie, where he says, among other things, you just got to keep living, man, L-I-V-I-N. <laughs> Which, of course, uh, when McConaughey won um, Best Actor at the Oscars 20 years later, he used part of that line in his acceptance speech. And that scene was shot not long after McConaughey's father in real life passed away. So there was a lot of feeling behind that speech there in the movie. And the point that I am making with all of this is that, well, two points. One is what you may think you've got planned when you're shooting the movie doesn't always turn out to be what's going to happen when you get it out on the floor, as it were. And secondly, most importantly, stars happen more often than not by accident. Yeah, they, they absolutely do. It, it was one of those things, like you're watching this movie and you're going like, wow, is that who? Is that who you think? And again, they're just so, so young at that point that you have these moments of trying to, to piece it together. I was like, when I when I saw Affleck, I was like, I know, wait, wait, is that Ben Affleck? It's got to be Ben Affleck. And so I kind of tweaked to it a little bit early. My wife, like I said, had no idea whatsoever. But I had same similar moments with, with Joey Lauren Adams and, and a couple of the others. Like, is that who I think it is? And, you know, going back and like double checking to see, yeah, I guess it is. Wow, that that's pretty cool. Um, one of the other things I really appreciated about this film was was its verisimilitude. It, it's just, it, there's so many details that it gets right as, as far as this, not just as far as like the way people dressed in 76 and the way people behaved, but you know, you don't have a lot of, um, of anachronisms in the film. I mean, once in a while you see like a car from the wrong year pass by something like that. But, but for the most part, it looks really, really good. And it does tend to capture some of the attitude of high schoolers in, in South Texas and, and, and uh, or, or the middle of Texas rather. And, um, you know, with, with the one exception I would say is that it does not convey just how much of a religion high school football is in that area. Like it is unbelievable. I have actually talked to high school coaches and the budgets they get are similar to what entire schools get here on the East Coast. It's just insane how much they put into the the, the the high school sports. You get a little bit of that because of the fact that there are several coaches going on, but you have no idea just like how big a deal it is there. Well, you also get a little of it in the scene where um, Pink is leaving the baseball game and he's accosted by this older couple who, uh, well, the husband 
Westman basically is talking about how many uh, starters are returning for the next year and um, how he expects great things from the team. And then you also get a little of it in the drug pledge and also the fact that while Pink is ideologically opposed to this, his teammates are like, well, okay, yes, this stinks, but what's the big deal? Let's just sign it, go on to the season, and we'll ignore it. Right. No, in fact, you don't... <laughs> the old guy, the old guy is so like so into it that he he actually grabs Pink's left arm and says something yes. about this arm's going to throw two thousand yards. When Pink is in fact right-handed, we see that several times through the film. Right now, um, the fact that um, you know Linklater does, I think, depict football culture so well makes me all the sadder that he did not direct the film version of Friday Night Lights, the movie version of which I hated, whereas the TV show I thought was pretty good. Which one did you see first, though? The movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. But anyway, um, getting back to the verisimilitude of the movie, one thing that was important for Linklater was not just to capture the details including the music, which I'm going to get into as well in a little bit, but at the same time, not hit you over the head with it. So that seems natural rather than kitsch. Um, By comparison, the TV show that was heavily inspired by this, that 70s show, is all kitsch. And it's... I mean, I have a lot of problems with the show, but the fact that they go for all the 70s stereotypes makes it all the worse for me, whereas um, Linklater's movie doesn't indulge in any of that, right? But, you know, but, which just I seems mean, natural. Yeah, I understand that, but, but I mean, the, you know, some shows just kind of know what they are and, and they'll lean into it, and I think that 70s show was one of them, because, I mean, they were kind of all over the place with the 70s references and that kind of thing, and they just, you know, they just decided they were going to kitchen sink that thing, and that's what it turned out to be. So, you know, it's not necessarily for good or for bad or for whatever. You just kind of have to understand that that's what they're going through and and you just kind of enjoy the ride as you go along. You know, some comedies are going to be, you know, gentle humor. Some are going to go for the big laugh, you know, L-A-F-F laugh. And, you know, the, the that 70s show is like they want to show a little bit of sentimentality toward the 70s. And yet at the same time, you know, they're going to knock you over with the stupid humor if they can. You know, not necessarily a bad thing. And I wouldn't personally have drawn a straight line from Dazed and Confused to that 70s show. But that's just me. Well, you said potato. Right. <laughs> Anyway, um, now one of the one of the things about this movie that we have to talk about is the use of time, and that's something that's very consistent with Linklater's movies. Not all of them, but a lot of them. You know, the way he will have sequences play out where it seems like they're playing out in real time. And, you know, he's using a lot of long takes Mm -hmm. in order to convey this, where we just listen to characters, you know, talk about anything, you know, especially when Slater 
who is uh, so memorably, memorably played by Rory Cochran, is the one doing the talking. Linklater and his cinematographer, Lee Daniel, not to be confused with the director, Lee Daniels, um, you know, they do a good job of using these long takes, not just when people are having conversations, but also when things are happening like um, Darla hazing the freshman girls by forcing them to uh, flop on the ground as she screams, air raid! Or um, Mitch and some of his classmates getting paddled. You know, all of this is a good way of capturing the fact that a lot of this is going on in real time, which also leads to, you know, just how boring, in a way, things are. Now, part of that was a stylistic choice because Linklater had said that he wanted to avoid the melodrama of 80s teen movies, particularly those made by John Hughes, because to him, it seemed like they were trying to cram too much story in there, Mm -hmm. whereas he felt that, at least when he went to high school, that not a lot was happening. But it also shows you just, you know, how the characters, especially Mike and Cynthia and Tony, sort of feel trapped by what they're going through. It's, you know, why Cynthia says at one point how the 50s stunk, the 60s rocked, but the 70s suck, (laughs) where she hopes that the 80s are going to be better. Of course, as someone who was a teenager in the 80s, I can tell you, yeah, not so much. much. Although I do like the 80s culture more than a lot of people do. But anyway. I get that. And and I agree with you as far as the whole use of time thing. And that's probably like the one thing that a lot of people would, if they have any complaints about, about films like, say, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, is just he seems to be cramming an awful lot of stuff into basically a roughly seven or eight hour period. There's just too much stuff going on. Whereas you you get all these different events that are happening in, in Dazed and Confused, which basically take place from, you know, roughly two, two o'clock-ish in the afternoon until about six o'clock the next morning. And you buy that all that stuff is taking place in that overnight period. It actually reminded me a little bit of uh, American Graffiti, where similar, you had like a lot of different stories going on, but because they were happening at roughly the same time as one another, so you were just kind of jumping to the same point in time with another character, you could get all this story going in, in this one period that took place roughly, you know, 18 to 24 hours, you know, again, from one afternoon to sometime the next morning and believe that, yeah, all this stuff could have taken place in that overnight period. At the same time, while, you know, I do recognize the American graffiti um, parallel, I would argue that this movie is closer in spirit to another movie that was set around the late 50s, early 60s, that was an ensemble movie, Diner, in that American Graffiti was somewhat of a nostalgic movie. Granted, you know, at the very end, when 
the movie is showing where what happened to the characters after Richard Dreyfuss's character goes off to college. You know, we get some hints that things are going to turn out darkly. Like one character gets killed in Vietnam. Uh, Dreyfuss's character ends up living in Canada, presumably to avoid the draft. But Generally speaking, although it's not as nostalgic as I think critics at the time were charging it with, there is sort of a warm feeling that you get after watching it, whereas Days and Confused and Diner, I think, are a little more clear-eyed in depicting the period, you know, not just because of the hazing rituals, but because of the behavior of a lot of the uh, characters like Clint and Darla and O'Banion. And also the fact that, as Mike points out, you know, when he and Tony are watching the hazing rituals that, you know, the town seems fine with what's going on. They're yeah. not doing anything <laughs> about this. Whereas today, this would cause quite a stink, even though there might be people who would uh, get angry at the backlash and trying to argue in favor. Of it. Yeah, I don't have any argument with any of what you just said when I'm well, all I'm just saying is, is from a from a standpoint of how these films use the apparent time that has gone by from beginning to end you know it I think you've got that's where I'm drawing the parallel to American graffiti and just that in you buy that all these things could have taken place overnight whereas people look at a Ferris Bueller and go eh, I'm not I'm not seeing where all this stuff could have happened that that's right. all I'm, that's there, all I'm going with here right and there is one uh, other place where the American graffiti comparison is quite apt and that is the use of music yeah. as with Lucas's movie there is no score in this movie at all. It's all songs. And although Linklater had um, a bad relationship with the studio that released this, which was uh, Gramercy, uh, in general, he had a lot of fights over the music because the executives wanted him to, among other things, have contemporary bands, like there was a band called Jackal, J-A-C-K-Y-L, that they wanted to cover, say, a 70s song. And Linklater was adamantly opposed to it. And finally, the only way he was able to get the music to be all period in the movie was to give up any royalty rights that he could have had to the soundtrack album, or rather I should say albums, because two soundtrack albums were released from this movie of all 70s hits. And he tried to get most of what he wanted in the movie. Uh, that Foghat song, Slow Ride, that plays over the end credits, had also played earlier in the movie. Right. Originally, he wanted Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll to close out the movie, but Robert Plant vetoed it for some reason. Uh, I guess he and Jimmy Page were not getting along at the time because Page actually approved it for the movie, but Plant said no. But 
most of what he wanted got into the movie. And in the commentary uh, on the Criterion DVD version that I own, Linklater admitted that some of the music choices that he made in the movie were kind of obvious, like when the eighth graders get out of school and also the high schoolers get out of school. What else do you hear but Alice Cooper's School's Out? But he... At first, he said that he wasn't going to do it because it was so obvious, but then he realized, well, it's so obvious, I have to use it. Yeah, Yeah, and it's weird because they're they're only, like most of the songs I I saw or or made note of were, in fact, like from that year, okay? Uh, You know, there were a couple that, eh, I think this song was released a little bit after the last day of school in 1976, but we'll let it slide. Um, Cherry Bomb would have been one of them I, off the top of my head. Um, and also, um, Do You Feel Like I Do? The album came out earlier in the year, but the song wasn't released as a single until later on. So again, eh, okay, we'll let that one go. But but School's Out kind of, I bumped on that one. I bumped on Summer Breeze uh, by Seals and Crofts and, because those are both from several years earlier. And likewise, there was a scene in one of the parking lots, I think it was at the Emporium, where we hear a few notes from uh, Black Sabbath's Paranoid, which is from 1970. And, and so I just wondered why, if everything else is going to be from 76, like why reach all the way back to 1970 to give us Paranoid? Yeah, but, you know, for the makeout scene, I mean, what else are you going to put in there but Summer Breeze? Yeah. And <laughs> also the Black Sabbath song. And I don't think it's the Emporium. I think it's a little earlier, but... But, um, you know, that's the kind of music that these kids would be listening to, first of all. And second of all, even back then, although there was... Um, there were music stations with people like Jim Ladd who were trying to keep freeform radio alive. You know, radio stations were becoming very conservative and playing, you know, mostly the same things. And, you know, I would assume, I can't say this for sure, but I would assume that in Texas, you know, that's the type of thing you would hear on the radio over and over, even at the time, even after the song had been released for a few years yeah i think likely the only like similarly the only song the only other song that i that i kind of bumped on and i'm pretty sure it was inside the emporium would have been um bob dylan's hurricane which was never really a big hit it's a politically charged song and i just i don't know it just seemed kind of out of place in there because it's a very long song it it, it just you know this wasn't something that was like burning up the pop charts or anything like that and it just i i i don't know it was like maybe he just wanted to have a dylan song in there or something i that one i didn't quite get well i you know for me I saw this movie in the theater when it came out. And I have to confess, I had never heard Hurricane before that movie. So I think it was more to do with it's a it's a nice, fast tempo song. And mm-hmm. that's appropriate because even though I think Witterson and the other characters are walking in there slow-mo, that, you know, it's sort of gets you grooving as they uh, walk in. Now, I have to admit that when I first saw this movie, that I thought Jason London was going to be a star after this. 
because he is just so natural. He is. And charismatic as Pink. And he makes you believe that Pink is one of the characters in the movie that is able to flow easily between the various cliques that are set up here. Yeah. That the, you know, he's very friendly with Mike and Cynthia and Tony, but he's also a jock, but he also hangs out with the stoners like uh, Wooderson and Slater. And he's also, you know, very nice with the um, girls And, you know, he actually makes you believe or makes you like him, even though he has Simone as a girlfriend, but he's also eyeing Mitch's older sister, Jody, who's played, by the way, by Michelle Burke, who would also star with Joey Lauren Adams around a few weeks later, a, a movie that came out a few weeks later, the movie version of Coneheads. But anyway, um, you know, when he's going through two women like that with other actors, that might seem kind of skeevy because it is, but he pulls it off pretty well. He does. And and, and it, it's not as though he, you know, did this film and then just disappeared off the face of the earth. I mean, he has been working pretty steadily since then. You know, it's just that, it, yeah, he didn't become like the big star, but he's but he is very naturalistic kind of guy. And and so I guess he just kind of functions now as more of a like a, a strong utility player. You know, he, he can he can do a lot of different things and he can do it in almost any context. I mean, I'm, I'm looking quickly at at his at his IMDb profile and I'm seeing like there's a huge variation in the types of films that he appears in and the roles that he plays. So it, it, it's it's pretty clear that he's one of those guys you can kind of put almost anywhere and he, he, he manages to make it work. Well, there's also the fact that, and I learned this when I read um, a book that's an oral history of the movie, which is a good book, by the way. It's called All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral <laughs> History of Days and Confused. Apparently, uh, I forget who it was, but someone very close to London died not long after the movie came out. And so he kind of dropped out for a while. And when he came back, he sort of had lost the moment. But there were other actors, as I said before, who gained steady work from this movie. Um, you know, I was very happy that Parker Posey, who I actually have met a couple of times, um, she was, if not a star, she got to get very steady work after this movie as well. Um, she, in the 90s, along with Lily Taylor, was considered queen of the indies. And she has one of the best lines of the movie when after the hazing in the parking lot is done and she's dismissed every dismisses everybody she says to uh, some girl wipe that face off your head bitch i love that line yes and uh rory cochran is another one who has gotten steady work um after this movie came out and he pretty much steals the movie from me as Slater. You know, one thing that Anthony Lane mentioned in his review was that Slater's problem is not that he's stoned. 
he thinks everyone else is stoned. Uh-huh. And that's sort of how Cochran plays it, you know, from his monologue about um, Martha Washington to um, whenever he's when he's railing against um, high school girls or when Wooderson meets Cynthia in the uh, drive-in and Slater is like, I know you, you're in my class. <laughs> yeah. You know, he just cracked me up every time he was on screen. Right. But it wasn't so much of him that it was, uh, that it was annoying. And, and the other thing that, that Linklater did, uh, which was pretty smart was, was uh, in, in the, in the, party at the moon tower scene uh you got a lot of a lot of him in little doses so you know he was talking about martha washington and george washington you know grew fields of pot he grew hemp but but you know he but he's reading it as pot and just like spinning these big funky stories and and what's going on and all these things that happened like you know hundreds of years ago but what happens is you get it in a little piece at a time so something happens in the party and then we come back to to Slater and he's telling the story and then we go somewhere else and we come back to Slater and he's telling another chunk of the story and then we go away and he comes back and there's still another piece and it almost reminded me of um of Tootsie with the scenes where you kept coming back to Bill Murray and he's like spouting these weird stories in the bar and he's talking about the the theater that only opens when it's raining and you know that kind of thing where you're just getting all these weird little doses of this conversation that this guy has just been going on and on and on and you just get these little tastes from time to time that makes it that much better that you're just getting it in those teeny tiny doses as, as, as the stories just get stranger and stranger and stranger. Now, speaking of Slater, that gets back to another way that Linklater tangled with the studio over the movie. And that's the fact that they marketed this as a stoner movie. The tagline when the movie came out was see it with the bud, which, yeah, not too obvious there. And it really isn't. I mean, yes, characters do smoke weed throughout the movie. And uh, Linklater ran into trouble with the studio about that as well. Because initially, ironically, they were like, do the characters have to use so much drug, so many drugs throughout the movie? And Linklater is like, what are you kidding me? These are high school kids. Of course, this is the 70s. But, um, you know, it is not a stoner move. It's, you know, as I said, a clear-eyed look at what high school would have been like in that time, in that place. Right. Not a stoner movie, a movie with stoners. And I think that might have been one of the reasons why it did not do remarkably well in the box office, did it? No. Although it did become a cult hit when it came out on uh, VHS. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were a lot of, um, there's been quite a few reunions of the cast and um, you know, as I said, it's become uh, it was became a big hit on VHS and DVD. The DVD was released on Criterion, which is the edition that, that I own. So it enabled Linklater to get noticed, even though he had a hard time when he was making it and trying to uh, get it done. So he sort of has a measured attitude toward the movie. One way it is measured as well. Um, There are a lot of deleted scenes that are on the Criterion edition that I own. And a lot of them 
involve the female characters. There's a uh, character who hangs out with um, Jody and a couple of the other girls. Uh, her name is Kay. She's played by Christine Harnos. Um, she's sort of the proto-feminist type. And her scene in the bathroom, where she gives a speech about how Gilligan's Island is sexist, uh, that scene was cut down pretty significantly. There's also a scene between Darla and Simone in the parking lot that got cut out and some others like that. And Linklater admitted that as he was editing the movie that the guys sort of took over and he felt really bad about that. And part of the reason why Before Sunset was his next movie, um, in addition to what the incident that actually inspired him to write it, is that he wanted to do a movie with a uh, better developed female character at the center of it. I, I, so, if, if I'm not mistaken, also, there was there were a couple of scenes that involved the, the statues that were painted up to look like members of KISS that were in the back of an El Camino. And if I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of scenes attached to that as well, which also involved female characters. It was like one of the girls had had done the painting on the on the statues. Do I, do I have that right? Or Mike? That was me. That was Mila Jovovich's character. Okay. But because she and Sean Andrews, you know, were hanging out so much, and because people other cast members were not getting along with Andrews. Those scenes got cut out. Mm -hmm. So um, is there anything else that you want to uh, say about this before we wrap it up? Just a small historical note. I got a little uh, curious to find out what, what is a moon tower anyway? So I looked it up. Okay. And basically moon, they were originally called moonlight towers and they were, Towers that a lot of towns used um, before the advent of streetlights. So they would build this gigantic tower, put very bright lights on it, and that would help to light up the immediate area. And this movie was shot in uh, Austin, Texas. And Austin was one of the last cities in the United States to have moonlight towers. So they took advantage of it and all the towers came down not long after the film was finished. So there are no more moonlight towers in the United States. Okay then. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with Ruby in Paradise. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. Okay, welcome back. So now Claude's going to give us the story of our second regional or southern story that we're talking about here. Ruby in Paradise, which stars Ashley Judd, who was turned down for Dazed and Confused, as it happens. Yeah, we open up on Ruby Lee Gissing. That is Ashley Judd. She is a young woman in her early 20s, and she is driving in her car through some rural country in Tennessee, possibly near the Chattanooga area. Uh, there is a brief flashback to her pulling away from a house as somebody belatedly realizes 
what she's doing and starts to chase the car down the road. But under the opening credits, we get a montage of her journey overnight until she finally lands in Panama City Beach in the Florida uh, panhandle. Panama City Beach is her destination, it seems, because she visited the place once as a child. Her first morning in town, she is awakened in her motel room by the sound of an Indian woman singing. She works at the motel and she is moving linens from place to place. Ruby goes looking for a job, but her problem is that Panama City Beach is a very seasonal town and the season is over. She manages to talk her way into a job at a souvenir shop when she convinces Mildred Chambers, played by Dorothy Lyman, that she's got the drive to get the job done. Ruby's first day or two is spent learning the ropes from Rochelle Bridges, a student who is about to depart for college and who is played by Allison Dean. One of Rochelle's pieces of advice is not to date Ms. Chambers' son Ricky, who hits on all the female help. Ruby gets permanent lodging in a bungalow, which is part of a small complex. The buildings are very small and close together, and it's pretty easy to see what's going on over at your neighbor's house. Ruby gets acquainted with her next-door neighbor, a young woman named Deborah Ann, played by Betsy Dowds, who's living with her boyfriend Jimmy, and there appears to be a third person in the mix, but it's never really spelled out. Ruby also notices an older gentleman who appears to go out fishing every day. Now, it's about this point that Ruby buys a notebook and begins keeping a journal, which we hear parts of as narration throughout the film. Ricky, who is played by Bentley Mitchum, does indeed hit on her, but she decides to accept the invitation. They go to a club and she ends up having sex with him that night, but it is quick and clearly unsatisfying for her. Not long after that, she purchases a plant for her home and meets Mike, played by Todd Field. It's not until she purchases a second plant, however, that they begin to converse with one another and they start dating each other. In the meantime, she has had another disastrous evening with Ricky, so he's becoming a little bit more insistent about seeing her yet again. She turns him down, citing several reasons, but not telling him that she's dating Mike now. In her journal, she notes that she didn't want her quote-unquote belonging to someone else to be the thing that makes Ricky back off. She doesn't want to be somebody's territory. Mrs. Chambers brings Ruby along on a business trip to a trade show in Tampa, where they are purchasing merchandise for the store. The night she returns, Ricky shows up at Ruby's door. He appears to be a little bit drunk, and against her better judgment, she lets him in. He becomes belligerent, and he tries to rape her, but the arrival of the next-door neighbors gives her the out she needs. She threatens to scream for them if he doesn't get off. Ricky fires her from the store. As she spends more time with Mike, she discovered that he has kind of an intellectual bunt, but it's more nihilistic than hopeful, and it begins to turn her off. She lies to him about why she isn't working anymore, and he offers to take her in, but he's framed it as taking care of her, which she doesn't really appreciate, and she turns him down. Ruby goes looking for a job, but she keeps getting rejected. She even considers applying for a job in a strip club, but she changes her mind when she takes in the scene. Eventually, she lands a position in a commercial laundry where she's working with two women, Persephina and Wanda. They're generally supportive, but they also behave like there's an untold joke between between them and it's at Ruby's expense. A few weeks later, there's a knock on Ruby's door and it's Mrs. Chambers. She tells Ruby that she has discovered what happened with Ricky and she wants Ruby to come back with a promotion. Furthermore, she guarantees that he won't bother her anymore. Ruby accepts the offer and soon after, she's back in the souvenir shop and they are gearing up for tourist season. Ruby and Mike have one more date and while it's not their last, it's the last one we get to see. This is the one where she tells him to knock off the gloom and doom stuff, either do something about it or let it go. Mike notes that she's right and apologizes. Ruby tells us in narration that they continue to be friends, but their evenings tend to end awkwardly. Ricky turns up in the shop one afternoon specifically to apologize to Ruby and tell her that he regrets his actions that night in February. She appears to listen and maybe accept the apology, but she doesn't say anything to him. One morning, Ruby is awakened by the sound of singing. It's the same young woman from almost a year ago, and she's singing the same song.
She gets up and follows the voice to one of the other bungalows where the woman is scrubbing the floor. It turns out that her family just bought the complex and she works there now as well as at the motel. They share a cup of tea and they talk about the songs she's been singing and it leads to the nature of how we define home. Walking back to her bungalow, Ruby sees some of her neighbors and appears to accept her place in the world. She returns to the souvenir shop with a good morning everybody, but it appears to be empty. And we fade to black and get the closing credits, but there's a little bit of an Easter egg in that the last 30 seconds fades back in on a shot from the beginning of the film, a point of view from her car as it crosses the Florida line just as the first light begins to appear in the sky. Okay, so this was a very hard to find movie for a long time. Uh, the DVD's been out of print for years. And while I was hoping to get to discuss this movie eventually, I despaired of it ever being available. I only have a copy that was originally on VHS that I had transferred to DVD by someone. But it was a few months ago, recently came out on several streaming networks, which we're going to get to at the end of the show. And there's been not a lot, but more than a little press for the fact that this movie is finally made available again in what seems to be, though I haven't checked it out for myself, a pretty good print. And because I love this movie so much, I'm glad it's finally getting seen again. Now, uh, let's talk a little about Victor Nunez first. Uh, his day job is a professor of film, I think at the University of Florida. And unlike Richard Linklater, who is uh, has been fairly prolific since Days and Confused, Nunez only directed two feature movies before Ruby in Paradise and only three feature movies after it. Although, according to the articles I've read pr promoting the re-release of Ruby in Paradise, he apparently has a film in development right now about a um, middle-aged uh, female college professor. But even though he has worked so rarely or so seldom, all of his movies that I've seen anyway do a really good job of capturing a sense of place. And almost all of his movies, with the exception of his last movie, Spoken Word, are set in Florida. And they all capture, you know, how dead it can seem at times. And at the same time, the life that is there, if you know where to look for it. And they all do a good job of capturing the mood of Florida as well. Interestingly enough, except for Ruby in Paradise, all of his, the movies that I've seen of his are in some way 
crime-oriented movies. Um, there's no real crime in Ruby and Paradise except for the attempted rape, which I'm going to get to as well a little later. But they're all character-driven more than story-driven as well. And while I know that drives a lot of people around the bend, those are the movies I really like when they're done well. And Nunez does a superb job, I think, with this for reasons that I'm going to get into a little in a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, uh, it, not only not only is is it very character driven, but but we are also we get like a real it's a, it's a slow burn on just everything, and and you know there are there are people who are going to be frustrated by that. And again, this was one I was watching with my wife, and we got about halfway through, and she was starting to wonder like where is this thing going? And I was like, just let's stay with it, you know. I, I you know I'm liking this, but but it was like uh, this vague. I'm liking it, but I'm not quite sure why, and I had to let it percolate a little bit before I realized that that basically Nunez was taking his time with everything. It was just moving so slowly, but that's okay because now we're taking place over the course of a year. And the other thing that I liked about it is, is that, you know, so many times films tend to take a very this or that approach to things. And, and this one didn't like people were allowed to be ambivalent and, you know, feel some sort of way, but not very strongly that that way and and not have a good understanding of who they were and where they were and you know where they were in the world and and what their place was and and you know we as viewers just kind of had to be okay with that and i actually was because you know i like that that sort of vagueness you know you know even even ricky who is pretty much a bad guy through a lot of this film he still has a little bit of ambivalence in that he is a driven sort of guy. You know, early on, he's like, you know, a, I guess maybe a day trader with the stock market. He doesn't appear to be like a broker as such. Um, but but he's he's got that drive and he's got that hustle and he does want to move forward for from for one reason or another. And then similarly, I think at the end when he comes back and he apologizes to her that it is it is a heartfelt apology and that he he does recognize he screwed up. He does, in fact, regret it. She doesn't have to buy it. And you're not 100 percent sure she does because she says absolutely nothing. And at the very end, she just gives like this tiny little nod. And I think that's all he needed to finally break away from her because she would say nothing and he would just uh, and, and he would keep going on and then she would say nothing and he would like feel compelled to say something else until you know finally she let him off the hook by giving him that the tiniest of nods and then he was able to to walk away and turn it back to you know a, a more generic hey business is booming and that's the last thing we see him say to her or see of him throughout for the rest of the film right now one storytelling choice Nunez does make that we should talk about is that Ruby, in addition to writing in a journal diary, she narrates the movie starting about 15 minutes in um, with that writing in her diary. Now, voiceover narration is a storytelling device that has caused quite a bit of a debate over the last few decades. Some people see it as a lazy way out in storytelling, that you're basically telling the audience how to feel. Others feel that it's 
a necessary element to storytelling. My view on voiceover narration is strictly, for lack of a better word, utilitarian. When it works, it's great. When it doesn't, it's not. And I think it works pretty well here because Ruby is basically telling us her innermost thoughts rather than at least most of the time telling us what's going on. Yeah, she's doing that. And and that's kind of important because she is not going to be the person who is going to voice that, especially to these people in Panama City Beach, who she really doesn't know. I mean, even her, her, her I guess what we, what we call her best friend would be Rochelle, whom she never sees. And again, doesn't talk to her very much doesn't the, the the conversations aren't necessarily very deep those are conversations about what happened you know but it's not like uh, there's not a ton of these are my aspirations i mean this is a person who had a rough life growing up apparently and didn't want to wind up you know pregnant or or beaten up and so she took off from the fictional town incidentally of manning tennessee which is why i said maybe it's near chattanooga um but but so she she is naturally going to be a little bit more reluctant to say out loud how she's feeling like those innermost thoughts and more often than not when we are getting the the journal narration it is almost invariably i'm not going to say 100% because i'm not positive but it is more often than not it is connected to scenes of her literally writing in the notebook so there are times when we will see her writing in the notebook, and then we will start to hear what she has to say. And then there are other times when we hear what she has to say, and then we cut to a shot of her writing in the notebook. So the two are almost always paired together. And that's how we get the feeling that that, that we get the deeper understanding of where her head is at at any given time. Right. It isn't 100% because there are times when you'll hear her voice over when she's talking to Mike and not just when she tells us how that relationship ultimately turns out, but there's mm-hmm. a scene earlier in the movie. I think it's when she's bringing up something that's going to represent career advancement for her at work, but he casually dismisses. Now, speaking of work, this is something that this movie, unlike a lot of American movies, takes very seriously. You know, Ruby takes her job very seriously once she learns to um, get into it. You know, there's a wonderful scene that Ebert singled out in his print review when um, Mildred has, and Ruby are at that convention and they go to lunch and Ruby sees a professionally dressed woman at another table talking with colleagues and that woman gives Ruby a look and the look is to say, hey, you work hard enough, you can be me in a few years. And Near the end, after Ruby has successfully come back to the job at the souvenir store, when Mike is making his dismissive comments to her and Rochelle about this being nothing more than a selling game, Ruby counters, at least it's a game I understand and I know the rules rules, of. So the movie takes 
her job very seriously. And it goes into details about that job, including the fact, and having lived in Canada for over a decade, I know this to be true, that Canadian tourists at a certain time in the winter will come down to Florida because the weather's much nicer. And there are times when the dollar is advantageous to them. And so they spend a lot of money in souvenir shops like this. But it's not just a souvenir shop that Nunez pays attention to the work aspects. There's also when Ruby is forced to get the job at the laundromat and with uh, Persefina and the other woman, the conversations that they have with each other. And then also, especially when Ruby is looking for other jobs and she wanders into that strip club, as Ebert pointed out in his review, when movies generally by male directors depict strip clubs in their movies, it's supposed to be a turn on to the male audience. And there's none of that here. You know, you get how lonely a job being a striptease dancer can be, even though in her narration as she's leaving, Ruby doesn't condemn them at all. She figures, well, if that's the type of job you have to get, that's the type of job you have to get. Right. This film does not engage in a whole lot of the whole male gaze thing, as as they say. You know, the scene in, in the strip club, I mean, you do see a, a girl take off her shirt. And I, I don't believe she's completely topless. I think she's wearing pasties. But, but you know, you don't get like, you know, the funky close-ups of this. This is a point of view shot. It's it's from, from clear all the way back by the door where Ruby is standing. As she's looking out, at, there's a couple of dancers. There's one who's pretty prominent in the shot. There's another one in the background. And you can see there's a couple of, uh, of, of patrons nearby watching what's going on. But you know, it's it's almost like, um, you know, and, and here, once again, I get to bring up The Sopranos, where there are scenes that take place in a strip club, and nine times out of ten, the girls are wallpaper, okay? There's no real there's no real focus on them at that point. They're just something that's going on in the room. So, you know, she she comes in, she sees what's going on, she talks to the, to the hostess, and, you know, who tells her, by the way, you can't be here alone, which I thought was an interesting detail. I had to think about that. And, and then I realized, okay, you know, that's kind of like an anti-hooker sort of sort of ordinance going on. And and so she just leaves and says, well, you know, everybody's selling something and that's just what, you know, these girls are about. And it's not a big deal, as you say. But similarly, you know, there are other scenes where, you know, is is the scenes where she is in, in bed with Ricky and Mike, um, not the same time separately, but 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 still you don't you don't get the weird like L-shaped sheet routine, but you don't get like gratuitous breast shots or anything like that. I mean, I think those those scenes are are done very, very well. And then one more that comes to mind is close to the end of the film, she's got the job back. And she goes out to uh, a spring break party um, with with uh, with with her friend with and, and uh, with Rochelle. And there is a male dancing contest going on. And so there are guys out there on that catwalk over the pool, and they are, you know, strutting their stuff. So you know, again, it kind of there's a lot of different ways that this film kind of subverts your expectations. And 
Male gaze is definitely one of them. The other one I'm going to bring up very briefly, I know you're coming back to it soon, is is the rape scene. But we'll talk about that in more detail in a minute, I'm sure. Right. But the um, spring break scene, I would have to say, is the, even though it has uh, guys showing off their stuff, uh, how they look without, without their shirts on, it's the only I would call stereotypical Florida scene that's in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else Nunez is trying to show us uh, Florida that we don't tend to see a lot in the movies. Now, another thing that Nunez does with this, without being heavy-handed about it, is he's making a fairly feminist movie here. Um, Mike seems like, you know, he's this good guy, you know, that he wants to stimulate Ruby intellectually, but he's very controlling. Yeah. It's not just the doom and gloom that puts Ruby off of him eventually. It's the fact that he basically, for all of his talk about wanting um, wanting things on the planet to be better. You know, he's basically someone who I wouldn't be surprised if he eventually ended up marrying a woman that was a stay in the kitchen type because that's the type of guy he is. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you know, he they, they they do have that scene right before they go to bed where where he, where he's watching the the televangelist. And, oh yes, and and so he starts talking about like you know maybe he doesn't 100 percent believe in specifically what this guy has to say, you know, but at the same time he does have this feeling that yes there is a God and yes that. You know, people have certain roles. And then he also, you know, frames, you know, things like when when he's going to be doing anything, it's like he's doing it as a means of taking care of her. Like she is somebody who needs to be taken care of. She's just maybe one more, you know, plant in his garden almost. You know, it's like it's like that that kind of thing is, is, you know, he's not going to they're not going to be like you know, co-equal partners, you know, it's, it's going to be, he's going to have a position and she's going to have a position and, you know, never the twain shall cross. Right. And then of course there is Ricky and yes, we're going to talk about the rape scene. Now it was uncomfortable to watch when I first saw this, which was not by the way in theaters. I saw it when it came out on uh, VHS, which is uh, dating me of course. But anyway, um, that rape scene is uncomfortable, was uncomfortable to watch then, but it's even more uncomfortable to watch now uh, after you hear uh, Ashley Judd come out and talk about how she was sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein. So to know that this almost happened to her in real life as well is uh, pretty devastating to keep in mind when you're watching that. Yeah. And and like I said, this is a, this is also a scene that that kind of subverts your expectations because, you know, she's down on the floor, he's on top of her, you know, she's trying to fend him off and then all of a sudden we hear the motorcycle in the background and you think for a moment that it's going to be Mike just just happens to show up and rescue her. And instead it's the next door neighbors. And, and she once again takes her own agency back and says, I'm going to scream and they're going to come and get me, you know? So she's still 
you know, threatening to at least call for help. But the fact is, she has basically, you know, rescued herself by doing it that way. Right. And talking about those neighbors, it's implied, it's implied rather, but not stated outright that Deborah Ann's relationship with the two guys she's living with isn't always the best. And that the most meaningful relationship that she has there is the friendship that she has with Ruby. You know, that's taken very seriously. And although Ruby does get along with, say, the, or she seems to like the guy who's sitting out there fishing, her most meaningful relationships in this movie are with women, Yeah, You know, there's Deborah Ann, there's Rochelle, and then once she warms up to her, Mildred. Mm -hmm. You know, at first, Mildred is very standoffish towards her, but then she invites Ruby to this conference. When um, she goes to visit Ruby at the bungalow to offer her her job back, she admits that when Ruby said to her, you know, that I work real cheap, that she saw fire in Ruby that reminded her of herself. And that's why she hired Ruby, even though it was the slow season. And so again, that's something that Nunez does without being heavy handed about it, which I really appreciate it. And and that's in fact the point where we learn that Mrs. Chambers' first name is Mildred, because that's where she says, you know, something like, thank you, Mrs. Chambers. And Ms. and Chambers finally says Mildred, you know, and so now she's got permission to actually use Mrs. Chambers' first name. And that lead me to something else that kind of crossed my mind is when we get the scene at the end where Ruby comes in and says good morning, everyone, to the empty store. There was actually a moment where I said to myself that Ashley Judd in this scene looks a lot like a younger version of Dorothy Lyman. And I have to wonder if that was part of the calculus in casting her. Well, I'm going to get back to the casting of her in just a moment. But let's talk about the other actors uh, here as well. Dorothy Lyman um, was... Oh, she's still alive, but she's mostly known for her TV work. Soap operas. At the time, yeah. Well, she was also in the sitcom Mama's Family, which is where I had first seen her. And she does a good job um, as uh, Mildred. Bentley Mitchum, who, by the way, we should mention, is the grandson of Robert Mitchum. Ah, okay. Uh, He did not have a big career after this. Um, His only other movie of note actually was the one he did before this, uh, Man in the Moon, which was Reese Witherspoon's first uh, role and which also co-starred Jason London. Mm -hmm. But um, I think he's very good at playing Ricky as the charmer, the menacing guy. And then also when he apologizes, but then lets a little of his old self out at the end. He's very convincing with that. Yeah, but I think that was, um, that was a recovery on the on the on the character's part. Is like he's finally been let off the hook a little bit, maybe right. kind of sort of. So yeah, he's going to revert back to the hey, I'm the right. business guy, you know. Right, and Allison Dean, who at that point was known for being in a small role in Coming to America, she does a very good job as Rochelle. 
And uh, Betsy Dads didn't have a big career, but she's good as Deborah Ann. And the one person besides Todd, besides Ashley Judd, who I'm going to get back to in a moment, who did have somewhat of a career after this, besides Lyman, was Todd Field. Um, like Parker Posey and several other members of the Dazed and Confused cast, he was sort of an indie movie stalwart during the 90s, as well as being a regular for the first couple seasons on uh, Once and Again. Mm -hmm. But he was in uh, Sleep With Me, which is best known as the movie where Quentin Tarantino gives a monologue about the correct way to read Top Gun. And he's also in Walking and Talking. And he's in a couple other studio movies like uh, Twister and Stanley Kubrick's last movie, Eyes Wide Shut. And he has since gone on to direct a couple features as well. But he's very good playing Mike. Uh, playing what seems to be the nice guy aspect of his character, as well as the snob and the stay-at-home-in-the-kitchen type guy that he ultimately turns out to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he, he did a good... He actually reminded me a little bit of... Um, of, of like Chris O'Dowd, I, I guess, you know, like, like that would be the person who kind of took over those roles in later years, I think. Although O'Dowd, uh, you know, I, I don't think he could quite carry off the the phony intellectual side of that. I mean, he's he's got a little bit more of a of a of a like a Hugh Grant like over sincere kind of thing going on. Well, if you count um, being a music nerd as uh, intellectual type, he does. De O'Dowd did carry that off in um, what was it? Oh, Juliet Naked. Mm. The movie he did with uh, Rose Byrne and Ethan Hawke, where he's playing this like music fan who is virtually devoted to the career of the character that Ethan Hawke plays. So I think maybe he could have pulled off that type of role. But of course, the showcase person in this movie is... Ashley Judd. At the time, she was known of being the daughter of and the sister of the Judds, a country uh, music group. And she had had a couple TV roles in things like the show's Sisters and Star Trek Next Generation. And Nunez was at first not completely sold on her, but then she auditioned for him and she actually is from Tennessee and she did as a preparation for the audition, the drive from Tennessee to Florida, just so that she would know what it was like. And she really captures all sides of Ruby here from the quiet fierceness to the vulnerability to her independent nature. And she has what I think is the loveliest scene in the entire movie when she's with Rochelle early on. And Rochelle is telling her about her boyfriend in college, about their hoping to get married and all that other stuff, knock on wood. And she does that on her, on the top of her head. And then the camera cuts to uh, Judd and she does the same thing on her head and she gives this 
dazzling smile when she does that. And it's such yeah. a wonderful moment. There. And then we get a callback to that shot. Like in, I think it's during the, mm-hmm. the, the spring break party and she's, and uh, no, 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 it, no, it's like, I'm sorry. It, it, oh no, it, it happens elsewhere. Um, because yeah, it's, a, it's a nighttime. But it's, it's after a, it's a, the spring break. Yeah, it's a yeah. night. It's a nighttime scene near the end of the film, and again, it's like there's no because because um, Rochelle actually says "knock wood" before she taps her head. But when yes. we get it, when we get it at the end, um, Ruby taps her head, and then Rochelle responds in kind, and there's just no dialogue attached to it, and we're just like taken all the way back to that beginning shot. The other thing mm-hmm. I thought you were going to talk about was in that same. I think it's the same scene at the beginning of the film when they're down on the beach and she is down by the water and she touches the water and then puts it to her lips and tastes the ocean for a moment and, and doesn't otherwise react to like, as Oh, this is terrible or anything like that. She's just kind of digging it that she could do that sort of thing. Right. And I sort of interpreted that as, you know, I want to see if it's like what I remembered when I came here uh, all those years before. Yeah, maybe. So now one thing I want to bring up before we uh, wrap this up in both the Wikipedia entry for this and on the IMDb page, they see this movie as a modern day version of Jane Austen's novel, Northanger Abbey, which is a novel that gets referenced in the movie, by the way, when Ruby is looking at all of uh, Mike's books and she pulls that one out and Mike says to her, that might be a little tame for you, but it's an excellent choice. And she's seen reading it at the store until Ricky comes up to her and cautions cautions her not to let uh, Mildred catch her reading while she's supposed to be working. And then a little later on, Mike starts talking about Austin's um, writing style and Ruby says, yeah, I liked it. It was a good story. But maybe it's because Northanger Abbey is probably my least favorite Austin novel, even though there are parts of it that are very good. I never really saw the connection between the two works. Now, maybe there is a little of Catherine, who's the heroine of the novel, in Ruby, but I don't really see it. Maybe it's me. Um, I, I got to admit, I am not familiar enough to say one way or the other whether whether you could you could draw a line between the two. So I'm just going to have to defer to you on that one. Okay. So anything else you want to say about Ruby in Paradise before we wrap this up? Just yeah, you know, one very quickly actually is that um, the if if you watch it on Amazon Prime. Okay, and you know I've said this before. I tend to watch these films with the captions on just to see if I'm missing anything. The captioning on this one is terrible. I mean, to the point where actually the context of some sentences changes for the worse. So un- unfortunately, it's it's some bad bad captioning on this one, and that that's unfortunate. Oh, also quickly, um, you had mentioned earlier about something about a, a a new and better print, and in fact, there are credits at the end of this film. For having remastered the the video, so you know, chances are, yes, you're going to get something much better than uh, when you watch your old D, uh, VHS. There, much better. right. <laughs> and reminded, you're reminding me of one other thing I should mention here. Even though there's not a lot of music 
used in this movie, it's pretty well used, starting with the opening credits sequence where you have Sam Phillips's Raised on Promises playing throughout. And that's a very effective song choice. Yeah, that so, one, and, and even it's the Sam Phillips again at the closing credits. Yes, although it's, it's another, a different song. A different song, yes, but but also just one I could I said, yes, this underlines the whole thing pretty nicely. Yes. So, uh, Dazed and Confused is also available to stream on Amazon Prime. Oh, no, it's not, for, it's not for free anymore. Not anymore? No, it's, not a, re- for it's, free? Okay. it's, a, it's a rent or buy from Amazon Prime. Okay, but it is available to stream through Peacock as well as Peacock Premium, okay. and it's available to rent or buy through Amazon as well as many other streaming services, whereas Ruby in Paradise, as uh, Claude mentioned, is available to stream on Amazon Prime as well as on Hoopla, and it's available to buy on Amazon and rent and buy through Vudu, Apple TV and YouTube and a couple of other places. Grand. What's happening next time? Well, next time we're doing something a little different. It's <laughs> little. I see what you did there. Yes. Uh, by the way, that was not intentional, <laughs> but uh, most of my puns are not. But instead of talking about two movies, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at three movies that are all adapted from the same source material, which is Louisa May Alcott's classic novel, Little Woman. And that is a movie, that is a novel that has been adapted many times to uh, feature films, as well as to uh, television. And we're going to focus on three of those movies with a nod towards a fourth. The ones we're going to focus on are the 1933 version uh, directed by George Cukor and starring Catherine Hepburn, the 1994 version directed by Gillian Armstrong and starring Winona Ryder, and the 2019 version written and directed by Greta Gerwig and starting, starring, excuse me, Saoirse Ronan. And as I said, we're also going to kind of nod toward the 1949 version, which is directed by Mervyn Leroy and starring June Allison, even though I am not a fan of that because it's pretty close to the 1933 version. And the 1933 version of Little Woman is available to rent or buy through Apple TV Amazon Prime, uh, Google Play, and uh, Vudu, and YouTube. The 1994 version is available to stream on Amazon Prime and the Criterion channel. It is available to stream on Amazon Prime, right? Yes, as far as I know. Okay. And it's available to rent or buy through most other streaming services. And the 2019 version is available to stream on uh, Stars and DirecTV and Stars if you get it through Amazon Prime. And it's available to buy through most of the other um, stream or rental services. And the 1949... No no, no, no rentals on that one. You got to commit, baby. No rentals, (laughs) yeah. And the 1949 version is available to stream on HBO Max Mm -hmm. and is available to rent or buy on most of the other services. 
rental or uh, streaming services. Fantastic. Where can we find ye on the web when you're not here? Well, I am on Facebook as uh, as uh, hard as that relationship has uh, been <laughs> over the years. And I am also, although I have not posted yet, I am on Instagram. On Facebook, I am Sean Gallagher. Uh, uh, Sean Gallagher. On um, Instagram, I am Sean K. Gallagher 4. And how about you, Claude? Cool. Well, you can find me on the Twitter machine at Claude Call. You can also find the show's Twitter feed at words underscore movies pod. And we do have an email address too, do we not? Yes. Words and movies pod at gmail.com if you have a question or comment. Yes, indeed. Okay. Have anything else for us or? We are done. So we will see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening, Rebecca. Take it away, please. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>